pour the, your word into people to be able to just work through them. And as well, for as Mr. Greg comes up, to be able to have, just have you work through him to speak to us. And I just thank you that he's come to speak to us tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right, Sydney, is it on? All right. Um, Michelle, what time do we normally try to wrap up here? Okay, good enough. Um, I know why we have a small group, because I like it that way. And I know why you're here, because that means I get to learn your names. Because I have a really hard time learning people's names when it's a lot of people at one time. So I'm going to make you really uncomfortable now and tell me your name, okay? So I'm going to start with Caitlin, right? Caitlin, and this is where I need help. Natalie. Natalie. Jake. I've seen you around before. I'm not exactly sure. I think your name is Caden or something. Uh Is that it? All right. Yeah. Uh Say it again. Ethan. Ethan. Warren. All right. Nice to meet you guys. I'm not promising anything, but I'm going to try to remember your names. What I would like for you to do, if you have your Bible, is open up to Psalm 63. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up on the screen that you can follow along with. And we're going to read through the first eight verses of Psalm 63. says, O God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory. Because Your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember You on my bed, I meditate on You in the night watches, for You have been my help, and in the shadow of Your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to You. Your right hand upholds me. So we're going to come back to that in a few minutes and dig a little deeper. But I want to start off by relating an experience I had a few years ago. I was on a mission trip, very similar to where our friends are, the type of mission trip that our friends are on right now in Augusta, except we went to Atlanta. And so we were partnering with this church in one of the suburbs there. And we were sleeping on air mattresses and sleeping bags in their Sunday school room. And then during the day... They would break us into teams and we'd go off to different locations and do different services and ministries. And then at night, we would have a youth service. And they had a whole separate building on their campus for a youth center. So that first night, we went into this building and their auditorium in this youth center was bigger than what we have here at Celebration. They had 
top-of-the-line sound system, top-of-the-line lighting system. It had a cafe, so you could buy snacks and drinks, and they served hot food. They had a separate area that had, like, foosball tables, ping-pong tables, video games. So me and a couple of the other guys that were with me that had been involved in youth ministry for many years, we were basically drooling, okay, because we had never had anything even remotely like this to work with. So we're basically like, can you imagine having this to work with all the time? And we were like making jokes with our youth pastor. Somebody's dropping the ball here. You know, where is our youth center like this? But a few years after that, I started to realize that that was the wrong attitude to have. That was the wrong way to be thinking. And the attitude, that type of thinking, had been building for years. And what, what had happened was this, and, and I'm relating all of this to the fact that I've, you know, what I've done over the years is work with young people, so that's what I'm relating this to, but it's, this is not unique to young people. But when you work with young people, whether you, the, you're the youth pastor or you're a teacher or you, you fill some other role, young people can tend to send off a message that they're bored, okay? That God is not enough. God alone is not enough to hold your interest. That... Um, just studying God's Word and trying to develop spiritually is not interesting enough to persuade you to continue coming. And so, in youth ministry, last week Dan talked about out of Ephesians, honor thy father and mother, and he talked about the parent-child relationship. And in youth ministry, there are some characteristics like a parent-child relationship going on. So if after you have spent time with young people, you get great satisfaction out of seeing one of your students click. They get it. And you can see them spiritually growing and they're, they're walking with the Lord. You get great satisfaction from that. And equally, you just get discouraged beyond all words when you see somebody that you've invested so much time in choose to go a different direction and self-destruct. So there's a little bit of a parent-child thing going on that I think made the church out of such a, you know, for the right reasons decide we've got to give them something else. We've got to do something to keep them coming, to keep them under the Word of God. So, sort of out of a defensive posture, the church began to strategically compete with the world. It started to look at, well, what does the world offer them that attracts them? What do they find appealing? What interests them? And then, let's come up with alternatives that will be much like what the world gives them so that they'll want to keep coming and that they'll want to come back. And I can tell you, I absolutely contributed to that. 
I absolutely contributed to that. So you're wanting, for with good intentions, to keep them coming back, but what you end up doing is, is thinking you have to package God. You have to make Him more entertaining. You have to make Him more alluring. Or else they're going to get bored and they're going to go off. And so instead, what happened was, instead of young people uh, being more and more attracted to God, more and more attracted to the Lord, we trained and conditioned them to think this way, and they took that into adulthood. So that on Sundays across the country, what we have are adults sitting in pews going, entertain me. Wow me. And so that's the type of thinking that has kind of gotten us into trouble. And I want to make this clear. I'm not Mr. Grumpy Pants. I'm not opposed to fun. I am a big fan of fun. I believe that it is completely appropriate for the children of God to laugh and be happy and enjoy life, and that it, that is especially true of young people. Okay, I, I've gone skydiving, I've tried hang gliding, I've done snowmobiling, I've done dune bugging, I've taken multiple groups, whitewater rafting, I've played more paintball games than I'll ever be able to count and accumulated enough bruises that probably over time my entire body has been covered in them. I'm not opposed to fun. But it does not, it is never supposed to become preeminent. It's never supposed to replace God. That's never supposed to be the major motivation for somebody coming to church. And that's what happened. That's what's happened in a lot of churches is that's the major motivation because God is not enough. <clears throat> so I want you to ask yourself this question tonight as we talk through this. In your life, is God enough for you? Because what we have here in Psalm 63, if you, if you have your Bible, it'll have Psalm 63 as the heading... And then beneath that, it has like a subscription where it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So this is King David, he of David and Goliath fame, handpicked by God to be their king, uh, the one who was their king at the most prosperous time in the history of Israel. And he writes this psalm when he's in the wilderness of Judea. And what most people agree is he's in the wilderness of Judea because he's running for his life. His son, Absalom, had set himself up as a rival to his father for the throne. And sort of like a political campaign, once he thought he had all of the support he was going to need, he went after it. And so David knew what was going on, got out of Jerusalem, ran for his life. And Absalom is chasing him. So David writes these words that we just read through a little bit ago while he's in the desert running for his life from his own son. 
which I think we can agree is are fairly discouraging circumstances to be in. And as you read through these verses, David is basically saying, even out here in the desert, when I'm running for my life because my own son is seeking to kill me, you're all I need. I am perfectly happy with you, God. So I want to look at just five words in this psalm to get a picture of of what's going on here. And what I would like you to do is apply this to yourself in terms of, does this describe me or no? So in verse 1, the first word is earnestly. He says, God, You are my God, I shall seek You earnestly. That means eagerly. That means I am eager to know You, God. I am eager to be with You. Now, um, I don't want to go too far off track here, but the, the most quoted verse in the Bible today is also the most taken out of context verse in the Bible and the most abused Bible verse in the Bible. It's judge not that you be not judged. And so the lost world loves to quote this, but it's even Christians now are practically tripping over themselves to show how non-judgmental they are. Okay? So the problem is you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And one of the among the fruits of the Holy Spirit is wisdom and discernment. He gives you the ability to make, sorry about that, He gives you the ability to make good judgments, good decisions, okay? And in the Bible, just as an aside, the way most people use that verse is to say, well, don't judge the way a person lives. Don't judge them by their lifestyle. Who are you to judge a person and you can't know what that person's really like? And biblically, it is absolutely true that you and I cannot discern the intents and the motives of a person's heart. We cannot get into their mind and know what's going on in there. But that's that's not usually how the Bible applies that. When the Bible talks about don't judge somebody by their outward appearance, more often than not, what the Bible is saying Just because someone on the outside looks like a follower of God, just because they sound like a follower of God, just because they're dressed nicely and look the part does not mean on the inside that they're the real thing. That's how the Bible normally applies that command. Not, hey, if you see somebody living in sin... Leave them alone. Don't judge them. That's not how the Bible typically uses that verse, but that's the way we use that verse. But you have, you have been given through the Holy Spirit the ability to use your common sense and your eyes to make judgments. And there are a couple of things that are clear tip-offs in terms of evaluating the authenticity of somebody's salvation. One is the sin test. If you see a person who is habitually in a pattern of living in sin in violation of the clear teachings of the Word of God, 
And there seems to be no remorse, no guilt, no attempt to turn from that. That is a clear sign that that person is not a child of God. And you don't have to take my word for it. Read 1 John's like five chapters. You can read it in one night if you want to. It hammers on this. No child of God lives in habitual sin. They are not, they do not belong to God. So I have the ability, based on the Word of God, to look at a person and judge. That person's not a child of God. I can tell this because they are living in a pattern of habitual sin with no remorse about it. I don't have to worry about being non judgmental because the Word of God already told me this. The other tip off is back to this, where David says, I am eager to know you. When you've got somebody that just has no interest in getting to know God, they're just not interested. That, you know, sometimes we make this more complicated than it is. When somebody has no interest in getting to know God, it's a pretty clear sign they are not His. Those are not things that you have to worry about being non judge or being too judgmental about because this is what the scriptures teach us. And so David is eager to know God. So I want you to ask yourself. I'm not talking about those times where you, you just do not feel like getting up and going to church. You just do not feel like reading your Bible. We all have those. I'm talking about consistently. There's just no interest. I, I just really don't care. I don't, you know, it just does, isn't for me. Do you ever have times that you find yourself eager to know more about Him and draw closer to Him. Second, also in that verse, these are actually two words where he says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. Remember, he's in the desert, so thirst is probably on his mind a lot. And what David is saying there is, I need you even more than I need a drink of water. I cannot live without you. Then verse 5. My soul is satisfied. And this really, if, any, if there's anything tonight that is the center of what we're talking about, it's, it's this right here. It's, this is a picture of contentment. This is whatever else is going on in my life. I am satisfied that I have you, God. A few months ago, I was in uh, the Dominican Republic on a missions trip, and among the things that I took away from this was um, you come back to America after you've been in a country where, frankly, these people never complain. I don't know if it's like this in the Honduras when you went there, but I mean, these people don't complain about anything. And I mean, I saw people that were living in just dire living conditions. And they couldn't have been any friendlier. So you come back to America and you listen to what people are talking about. And you realize that 
will probably go down as the most affluent, wealthy nation in the history of the world. Probably the freest nation in the history of the world. But I think we might be the most unsatisfied people in the world. Just nothing is ever enough for us. We always have to have more, bigger, better, newer. Nothing is ever enough. We are a very, as a nation, we are a very unsatisfied nation. Which speaks to our spiritual condition. Because here is David in the desert running for his life and he's saying, I'm totally satisfied. Because I have you. And that's all I need. And then the last one, verse 8. My soul clings to you. Like, I don't think I ever see Michelle anymore walking around when her daughter isn't like attached to her hip. That is clinging right there. And David is saying, God, I want to ride around on your hip. I want to be right there attached to you, God. So, these are the characteristics of of somebody that God is enough for them. And I just want to ask, do you ever... Have you ever just like, when you're praying or whatever, you just close your eyes and you just say... Jesus, I love you. And there isn't anything else that needs to be said. I don't need to ask for anything. I don't need to complain about anything. I don't need to vent or get anything off my chest. I just want to tell you, Jesus, that I love you. Does that ever happen with you? I don't want to dwell on this too much, but... You know, we talk, I was talking earlier about where the church has gone. And, and, and the, the, the catchphrase now is culturally relevant. And so, in our desire, in our zeal to be approachable and to be liked and to, for people to feel comfortable about coming to our church, we have sort of lost sight of whether or not whether we get the world's approval or not, whether God has approved of the way we're doing His business. Because Jesus told the disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, you talk about not fitting in. And so a person who is growing in the likeness of Christ is always going to have trouble fitting in. That's just the way it is because we are at odds with the general philosophy of the world. I had um, a few years ago, my wife and I were at Cocoa Beach and we were there for a weekend and we were going to go down to the beach one day so we had all our stuff. We went down the boardwalk and as we're going down the boardwalk, you can see on this beach just stuff as far on in either direction just things laying over the beach all over the place and when we got down to the beach we f- saw they were jellyfish i mean by the hundreds on the beach so we sat our stuff down and i kind of dodged my way down to the surf and sure enough you know there in the water you could see jellyfish floating around in the water so i knew um whatever else we had planned for the day swimming in the ocean was out 
So we hung around for a little bit because, I mean, we'd been looking forward to going to the beach. And then after a while, this family comes along and they kind of set up near us and they've got like a four or five-year-old boy with them. And they're kind of doing the same thing where they're looking up and down the beach going, what happened here? And then they start to make their way down to the surf. And I'm watching them. And I said to my wife, surely they're not going to get in the water. Surely they are not going to let their little boy get in the water. But they did. And I don't think he was in the water 30 seconds before he's jumping around screaming because he got stung. So these people saw hundreds of jellyfish on the beach and not a single human being in the water and totally ignored it. And said, we're going to get in anyway. And got their boy stung. That is sort of what the church is doing. There's all these warning signs all over the place. You're get, you're, the, the world, whether you get their approval or not, forget about the philosophy, the psychology and everything. Stop trying to buddy up to the world because they're never going to accept you. And do you realize in the last couple of weeks, we've had these three headline stories. We have the story of the guy who was born as a man who's telling the world he's really a woman. We have the story of the woman who was born white who's telling the world she's really black. And we have the story of these people that are fully physically functional but say they identify with disabled and are going to doctors asking to have their legs amputated. These are our people. This is, these are, this is really going on. This is how messed up we are. This is how messed up the world has become. And we're trying to buddy up with them. It just doesn't work. The focus needs to be on whether or not we are drawing near to God. And so, you have to ask yourself, whose love do I want? Do I want approval from the outsider so they can think I'm, I'm just a real guy? I'm just a normal guy like you. Do I want them to feel like, you know, I can relate to this guy because he's just like me. And so you're seeking the world's love and approval or do you want God's love and approval? That's the decision we have to make. So I've got three kids... And they're all adults now. The first two were boys. And when they were little, we had like nothing. I mean, we were, we were poor. And I don't want to belabor this, but just to give you a flavor for what I'm talking about, um, we rented a house. It was roach infested. We had one room, one wing of this house that we had to block off so the kids couldn't go in there because the mold in the room was so bad mushrooms were growing out of the carpet, okay? So, um, we drove, we had one car and the paint was peeling and it was always breaking down and it was just a, a survival contest to just make it, okay? I got to where I like hated Christmas, if you can imagine this, because Christmas was about giving gifts. I couldn't give my kids anything, I mean, they had very little. 
what they had was usually something that they got from grandpa, okay? But when I would come home from work and I would walk in the house, those two little guys would come in there and they would stand in front of me and they would just go, hold me, hold me, hold me. And they would stand there doing that until I picked them up. So I would pick these two boys up and then they would just laugh and giggle. They didn't know they were poor. They didn't know they didn't have much. All they wanted was me. They were completely content with me. Now I didn't appreciate that at the time because life tends to be overwhelming. I'm worried about how am I buying groceries? How am I paying bills? How am I getting us a better car? How am I getting us out of this house? And it wasn't until later that I began to think how special that was and that I did not appreciate at that time how absolutely pure their love was for me. So now I have grandkids. We have three little girls that I am desperately in love with. And so a couple of weeks ago, the two oldest ones came to the house. And when I say oldest, one is three and the other one is one. So they're at the house and I'm in the backyard and I'm carrying the three-year-old around. And the one-year-old who's just started to walk comes out and we're buddies. So when she sees me, she, she wants me. So she kind of waddles over to me and I pick her up. And so here I am standing in the backyard holding my two granddaughters and it was like deja vu. I was thinking it was like God going, I'm going to give this guy another shot. So all they wanted to do, we spent I don't know how much time just throwing rocks in the pond. They were endlessly fascinated with this. You throw a rock in the pond, watch it splash, hear the kerplunk, see the rings. They just wanted to do it over and over and over. All these two little girls wanted to do was hang out with Grandpa and throw rocks in the pond. And I can't even begin to tell you how much pure, unfiltered joy I got out of it. When we get to our spiritual maturity to where we are eager to be with God, where we thirst for Him, where we are satisfied in Him, when He is enough, whatever else we have or don't have, He is enough. I think it brings God absolutely pure, unfiltered joy like nothing else on this planet can bring Him. So consider tonight whether or not in your life to this point is God enough. And whatever it is that's competing with Him, what you're going to have to do to adjust that. Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank You for these young people being here tonight, for their faithfulness. We pray for those who are serving You, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Augusta. We pray for Your favor on them, that they would glorify Your name and contribute to Your kingdom. But for these young people who are here tonight, I ask for special blessing on them, that You would help them to fall in love with You, Jesus, to just everything else gets pushed aside and they see You in all of Your beauty and all of Your holiness and all of Your goodness and they would just fall in love with You and want You more than anything else that anyone can offer them. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.